A decade ago, New York's southern tier had the potential to be a major source of fossil fuels as a result of plans for high-volume hydraulic fracturing of new natural gas wells. The future was stopped by an executive action from the Cuomo administration, which was then codified years later by the Democratic majorities in the state legislature. But now the region has become the focus of a new effort to extract fossil fuels, as a company known as Southern Tier Solutions is interested in leasing land for a new approach to securing natural gas from the Marcellus and Utica shales, an approach that the company stresses is different than high-volume hydraulic fracturing, which is water-intensive process for securing natural gas. For more on the company's plans, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by their president, Bryce Phillips. Welcome to the studio, Bryce. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to visit with you all. It's our pleasure. So, first of all, who or what is Southern Tier CO2 Clean Energy Solutions, the mouthful of a name that we're going to shorten to Southern Tier Solutions, as you have conveniently done in, in, in most of your work? Absolutely. Uh, Southern Tier Solutions is actually uh, owned by a company called CO2 to energy solutions out of Wyoming, but it is a, a New York-based limited liability company formed in April of this year, uh, specifically for this project that we propose in the southern tier of, of New York, being more or less portions of Broome, Tioga, Chemung, and uh, Steuben counties. And so uh, it was spawned during the, the COVID years. And we looked at, and when I say we, a host of petroleum engineers, chemists, geophysicists, and geologists that we work with and have been partnered with in other projects. We looked at the southern tier of New York because we were looking at an area that would not be subject to the commodity cycles that the oil and gas industry has suffered over the last decade, really. When I mean a commodity cycle, you know, low oil prices, low oil ga- ups low and gas downs. Prices, ups and downs. And so you say, okay, you know, New York has basically the second highest cost per kilowatt hour uh, on a utility rate basis in in the country. I think Hawaii is higher. And because the price of power is much more stable over a long term, it actually, it tends to escalate over a period of time. So, you know, we looked at this and said, if you could convert the natural gas resources of the Southern Tier, and you could convert those to power, in a manner that didn't exacerbate the current carbon crisis, mm-hmm. you could do a, a few things. You could, A, develop an area that historically, since 08, as you mentioned, has really not had the ability for the citizens to monetize the assets under their feet. And when you mentioned you know, oil and gas side and, and the fracking side, uh, we're interested as much in the poor space. And that's P-O-R-E for for (laughs) listeners here. Yeah, and I want to get into some of the technical stuff. But before we move into some of that, I I just want to hammer back onto the origins of the company because I I notice an accent as we're talking. And it's definitely Southern Texas, it sounds like. So what sort of background do you have or any of your partners in, say, the fossil fuel industry? Sure. Myself, I've been in the industry since the 90s in several different disciplines, originally trained in the land discipline as a landman, but move quickly into operations, geology, geophysics. I have a, a real diverse background, and that's what you get in this industry mm-hmm. if you've survived for any length of time. Uh, and when I've talked about we, the, the individuals that are part of this, we've got petroleum engineers that work with that are out of California, Bakersfield, uh, directional drillers that we've worked with out of Casper and Cody, Wyoming, geophysicists out of Watford City, North Dakota, three geologists in Houston, another geologist, Tel Aviv, that we work with 
have spent years studying this project and some chem and some chemists. So it's a it's a pretty diverse group, but all of our backgrounds are 100% oil and gas related. And with the deviation, while we were running a parallel course to looking at the southern tier, also kind of a geothermal background, okay. and that's really where CO2 came in because it's it's got a, a specific benefits in that manner. So the southern tier kind of popped out while we were working the geothermal angle as well. So. Well, yeah, so let's then turn to more of the technical side here uh, of this conversation. And your plan to extract the methane from this area, which is the primary component for natural gas in the Marcellus and Utica shales, how is that going to be different than the high-volume hydraulic fracturing that was banned by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo about nine years ago? And for listeners, the high-volume hydraulic fracturing process is very water-intensive, but what are you envisioning as an actual process for getting the gas out? The Department of Energy Conservation does have a, a definition for, mm -hmm. for hydraulic uh, fracturing. And that was implemented some years back. But it's basically any process that uses 300,000 gallons of water in any well bore cumulatively. And if you're looking at a typical frac job, say, in Pennsylvania, you're looking at 9, 10 million gallons of water. So it's, right. it's a pretty big difference between 300,000 and 10 million. And the threshold in New York law is 300,000. Correct. And that also involves pumping that, that water at pressures that approach 10,000 pounds per square inch. So a little, little more powerful than your, your garden hose. Exactly right. And, uh, and also that it's mixed with a slurry of chemicals. The process that we envision doesn't obviously use the water. Uh, we're using carbon dioxide as actually, instead of a, a fracking fluid, these wells are stimulated as we're drilling. So they, they look nothing alike. Matter of fact, when you drill a well and you complete a well, once you're done, that's when you would see a frack fleet come in and, and it's hundreds of truckloads. Actually, it's over a thousand by the time you bring it all in. And so it's, it's pretty invasive process. That's certainly not the case in what we envision. As we drill... We're fortunate that the Marcellus itself is highly naturally fractured. Um, carbon dioxide, if you're drilling, using it as a drilling fluid, is almost like when you have a, some type of mineralization on your water faucet or your, in your bathroom, and you say, well, how do I get rid of this, you know, this mineral? It, it basically dissolves it. And so we're not looking at the pressures. We're not looking at, uh, at the volumes that you would look under the hydraulic fracturing rule. But... The only way to sequester CO2 in this process while you're drilling these wells is you have to remove the methane that's in place. It's like trying to park two cars in a one-car garage. I mean, you have to get one out in order to, to put the other in. Right. So, in the, I mean, the most reductive way of thinking about this is that CO2 goes into the ground and methane comes out? Broad generalization, and we don't There's have, probably some we, engineers we who would really hours. get mad about that. But, I mean, <laughs> right. for the layman's purpose, is that a, a fair way to think about things? Right. The fair way to th think of this is our goal is to replace that existing methane with carbon dioxide over an extended period of time. And right now, as we speak in late November, what are you currently doing to realize your extraction plans? Where would you describe the process now? Uh, we launched to a, a whole host of landowners, about 6,500 landowners we contacted, and that was by direct mail, about a month ago. And it was really just to raise our hand at a given moment and say, this is an opportunity that I believe that the Southern Tier has. My part is it's pretty simple. It's education, 
and inform people of the opportunity, inform people of the process. It's not, hey, sign this lease, send it back to us, and let us go about our merry business. That is actually uninteresting. There is no way, unless you have widespread community support and you have support then that extends to local and state governments uh, and also to the federal government, that this will ever work. You're just not going to sneak through this process. And to this date, we haven't got a lot of hate mail. So that's, that's great. You know, usually you get the hate mail first in, in life. You know, then the hugs come later. But we don't want anyone to move forward until they're comfortable. And how much land do you need access to in the southern tier to make this project worth your while? We're really looking at a minimum of about 100,000 acres. We'd like to see that in the works by March, April. As long as we see that it's, that it's moving forward and that there's just not a, you know, a line in the sand that's drawn by some regulatory agency or some, some unforeseen that says this cannot move forward because of X. Um, and, and we haven't seen that. And in terms of those acres, maybe this is a dumb question, but yeah. do they all need to be connected? Yeah. Uh, do you need uh, a uniform, uh, cohesive block of 100,000 acres? A- absolutely. Actually, we need uniform, cohesive blocks between 30 and 50,000. Okay. U- ultimately, no, we would ultimately like a million. Ultimately, we'd love to see a, a series of 10 300-megawatt power plants be the electrical backbone of the state of New York that's reliable, that doesn't produce any carbon emissions, that ultimately is sustainable for 35 to 50 years. And, you know, that comes with thousands of jobs. I look at it almost like an insurance program for the state. I say, great, everyone's got these goals on the renewable front. Just in case those don't work out, then you're not starting flat-footed. You have something in place that can act as the insurance policy for the state. So New York is in the process as the result of a 2019 law of trying to reduce its reliance on fossil fuels like natural gas. So what would your message be to the environmentalists and state lawmakers who push through that legislation? What would you tell them is the reason to go forward with a plant that is going to be producing methane that can be used in the future? Obviously. The leading cause of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is the burning of fossil fuels. Okay, so the 2019 mandate was, was a necessary result of what they foresaw. If we continue down this path, we continue to burn, burn fossil fuels, we'll continue to add to the carbon emissions, so that's a problem. So let's go ahead and have a mandate that says we need to reduce that. If you knew in that basket of renewables that you're chasing that you could actually produce methane, converted to electricity in a manner that did not contribute to greenhouse gases, that nothing was released in the atmosphere, I think there would have been an asterisk in that 2019. They just weren't aware of it. So the methane itself that's converted to electricity, there is nothing. No methane is released in the atmosphere through this process. No carbon dioxide is released in the atmosphere. When I speak of no emissions, I'm not just limiting that to carbon dioxide. I'm saying the natural gas that comes out of the well bores produces power, and every byproduct of that is re-injected back underground. So it's, there's not, I'm not trying to net anything out. I'm just saying there, there's nothing going to the atmosphere. But I do believe if the state really 
wanted to look at this, and, you, and direct air capture is perfect because it is actually taking something out of the atmosphere. But it is energy intensive, and they have a big footprint in order to accomplish that. I think there should be a hard look. If you want to reach the goals of the 2019 Climate Act, you would allow us to capture carbon dioxide from existing power plants in Pennsylvania and pipe that carbon dioxide to the southern tier and inject it. If you catch it at the source, you're almost getting two for one because if you allow carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, about half of that is actually consumed by biogenic sources, like the trees and things of that nature. So when you're trying to capture from the atmosphere, you're spending twice as much energy to capture something that half of it is already going to be captured through the, the natural process. And after a quick break, we'll continue our discussion with Bryce Phillips, president of Southern Tier Solutions, which is looking to extract methane from the Southern Tier and claims they have an environmentally friendly way of getting the gas and turning it into power, which involves carbon dioxide being pumped back into the ground. For listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and our guest is Bryce Phillips, president of Southern Tier Solutions, which, nine years after the state effectively put the kibosh on extracting methane from the Southern Tier with fracking, is looking to restart these efforts, but claims they have an environmentally friendly process for getting the fossil fuel and turning it into power, which involves carbon dioxide getting pumped back into the ground, as opposed to using high-volume hydraulic fracturing. How much of what you envision for the Southern Tier is possible with existing technology, and how much of it is reliant on technological breakthroughs in the near future? We're comfortable with the hand that we have. We believe this is doable, and this is doable now. We've made quite a few advancements in what I would say the equipment that would be used in the process, just because CO2, you got to handle it a little different than you do water. It's you know, corrosive, uncertain alloys, it, it's, it's density changes. There are certain things that demand you, your surface facility looks a little different. You know, we've gone down as far as to say, okay, the drilling rigs that will actually drill these wells, they'll be electric. Between battery-powered and electric, it's not, it's not uncommon. It's, they're used in the industry. They're just not custom because it's not necessary in most places. Mostly in cities is where they would be used because they're quiet. In this case, we see everything being electric in the future. So in the last go-around, when there was an effort to tap into the natural resources of the southern tier, there were efforts to license the property, and people were being paid a wide range of figures, some in the thousands of dollars for property that never ended up being tapped for these resources. How are you approaching the licensing process as you look to secure 100,000 acres? And what are you prepared to pay people uh, up front for access to their land? This has probably been the most interesting conversation I've had with the citizens of the Southern Tier. Historically, if you're looking at an oil and gas lease, that gives you the right to produce oil or gas from the ground. They've always been like this. An oil and gas and poor space lease, which this, I think, is the first there certainly is poor space leases, but this is probably one of the first combination leases uh, in the U.S. It not only gives you the right to produce oil and gas, but it ha- gives you the right to put something in that poor space. When you remove the methane from the poor space, it allows you the right to actually put something back into it. 
that is not customary on the leases that exist in the vast majority of the U.S. today. And I think to a lot of companies' fault, they think it is, and they're going to end up being disappointed later in life. But we've approached it as this. It's a flat fee. We understand and know well the history of Chesapeake and XTO and all the, most of the operators that came in here and offered $10 to $5,000 an acre. Certainly understand that. We're not here to repeat that. We're going to pay a flat $10 for your lease. I don't care if that lease is 30 acres or it's 1,000 acres. That's the way this has to be because you need, as a landowner in the southern tier, you need your neighbors as much as they need you. If you had 1,000 acres and you wanted to give it to us to drill a well, there would be nothing less interesting in my life. And I'm looking at years ahead. I cannot imagine a situation where this area will be developed, where operators will come in and write checks similar to back in those days. It's economically unsound at the cost of actually drilling wells. I think that was just the heyday and that was just the boom and everybody got ahead of each other and everybody wanted to show off and see who had the most acreage. Well, I imagine, though, the $10 represents an upfront cost, and there's probably some profits on the back end for these landowners. Uh, oh, sure. They get, a, they get a royalty. And the royalty's really interesting. I mean, natural gas prices, if there were even pipelines to excess in New York, which there are not, the prospects of putting new large diameter interstate pipelines in New York, those are pretty bleak. It's been proven from a number of operators that have tried to put those through. So you're never going to move the gas of the southern tier by a large-scale pipeline. And if you did, you would probably end up like close to a dollar per thousand cubic feet. It's absolutely not worth getting out of bed. And so I certainly wouldn't have driven 1,600 miles to talk about it. But in this instance, where we convert that natural gas to electrical power, you're looking at an upgrade of the product to, say, 6 or $7 per MCF. And the landowners all get the same thing, 20% of whatever we get. You're now looking at a factor from the landowner standpoint and saying, would I rather have someone pay me $500 an acre or $300 an acre, and yet for the whole future life receive something based on my proportionate royalty revenue of a dollar, or would I rather have several times that? We, we did struggle with it. I mean, will we pay $100 an acre? But why? Paying another $50 an acre or 100 would not have made a difference. It's not life-changing when the average track is 40 acres. So regardless of the merits of what you're talking about, whether from the environmental perspective, the economic perspective, or the energy creation perspective, any sort of green light from state regulators is going to take a while. It's not going to be fast-tracked in any sense of the word. It likely could take years to get something like this off the ground, given the way our politicians and regulators approach something like this, especially with the buzzwords that we've talked about that are probably throwing up people's alarm bells as we speak. So what is the timeline for Southern Tier Solutions that makes sense? And is there a date where you would imagine pulling out and say, two years of this, I'm giving up, three years, I'm giving up? I mean, how do you think about your time investment in terms of getting something like this started? Well, we, we looked at trying to see that we had the certain blocks or areas that looked like they were committed, and we can build upon them. Mm -hmm. It may be by the spring, we say, okay, there's, there's three or four blocks that are several thousand acres and say, listen, we'd like to drill a test well here next summer, as we did speaking with the EPA earlier this week, uh, because they asked the same question. 
And those test wells aren't really to determine the quantity of the gas. It's as much the interaction of CO2 with the shale, the absorption capabilities of the shale. The engineers have a list. It's like two legal pads and then the back of those pads of the tests um, that want to be conducted. And we need that data for ourselves. We have a lot of that data from other sources. But unless you do it yourself, then it, you, you can't always be guaranteed it was conducted uh, under conditions that you would consider the data accurate. They're not going to be economic successes. You can call them science projects. Proof of concept. There you go. And, and that's really going to define the blueprint for large-scale build-out. So we would look at proposing those sometime next spring, early summer. We also look at working with the D.C. and the EPA as we're getting to that point. We, we don't want to just drop this on somebody's desk. Um, but now, if we dropped it on your desk, you wouldn't know what it looked any different. There are no boxes in this that make it look any different. If we just filed a well plan, the DEC overall would probably look at it and say, we don't see what's different. There's air drilling done in the state of New York all the time. You, you could probably mask it w without even being clever. But listen, we're not here to find a loophole. We're here to find a long-term solution. Right, but going back to sort of the initial premise of the question, yeah. what happens if the state says... No, you can't even do test wells uh, on the schedule that you're looking for in 2024. Do you, do you have the authority to go and do this regardless? Do you sit on your hands and wait? How do you approach that? Because th that is a real possibility given the state's history. It is, but we're looking for, we're not here to pick fight. We're not here to say, legally, we have the right to do this. Do you feel like you have the right to do uh, this without we, state authority? We do, but let me couch that. Certainly, you need the permitting process has to go through the state. We have no rights to do anything unless the state approves. We're also not looking at, at this and saying, listen, we're turning this in. You have no choice but to sign this because we're perfectly within our right. That sets a really poor precedent. We'd rather take a bit longer, work through the process and say, listen, you have these goals. This process will achieve your goals. The, the process for the landowners, uh, it will achieve their goals. Our goals, the state's goals, federal goals. Let, let's go about it in a manner that all of those goals are achievable, not because we can, because we have a bigger stick or we. That's not healthy. So I think it was at least four years in between the initial injunction, so to speak, on high volume hydraulic fracturing in New York and then the. Cuomo administration actually putting down its foot on the issue in 2014. So if there was some sort of four-year wait period on this type of fossil fuel extraction, would Southern Tier Solutions stick around through that four-year wait period? Or would you move on to other areas to see where you might be able to try this idea? We have a lot of international interest mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the shale basins of the European Union countries also, sub-Saharan Africa uh, have similar dilemmas. Per se, they don't have a fracking ban, but they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the water. They may allow fracking, but they're not suited to sustain it. Mm -hmm. And so for, from that aspect, we have a lot of interest. You know, this is New York, and there's a lot of eyes on the state. And the process is in its infancy, and, and it's they're really trying to take it out of China, and it's being used in Canada some, and it's been even used in Oklahoma a bit, but it's not 
you know, it's not widespread because it hasn't been required because water is generally cheap and accessible. Um, you know, as far as when we pull the ripcord and say, you know, if we get this much pushback for this period of time, we're gone. That decision is left to what we call progress. As long as there's open dialogue and as long as parties are communicating and we feel like the needle is moving, however you measure that, whether it's by this, you know, a yardstick or a centimeter at a time, you have to say, okay, it, because it's, it's, it is a contentious issue. But this really isn't an oil and gas issue. Right now, if we wanted to drill a horizontal well anywhere in the state, I'm sure the state would approve it without issue. It's the stimulation program that's the fracking program. I mean, that's the subsequent to the well being drilled. Then you stimulate it. That's the addendum on that permit. You know, we don't have the addendum on the permit. So it, it, it just looks like you're drilling a hole in the ground. But we don't want to go down that road and say, oh, look what we were able to, you know, sneak under the wire. Because it's unsustainable. You know, you don't make friends by baking enemies first. You sit across the table and you work through it. So at this point, Southern Tier Solutions seems to be the only company that has overtly expressed the interest that it has in the Southern Tier in terms of extracting its natural resources this way. Do you imagine you're going to remain the only player in this space, or are you the first mover uh, among many who are going to come to New York pitching this idea for extracting natural gas from the Marcellus and Utica Shales? We don't foresee any competition. They don't need to do this. The rest of the country, absent California, is basically open to business as usual, and there are places that have higher gas reserves in place. So... You know, why go out of your way if you're another operator to start a new learning curve when it's not necessary? Uh, I don't foresee, you know, competition, but that's not how we based our pricing on. If someone came in and started to compete, we would probably visit with them and I would give them some fatherly advice that that isn't helpful. You're not going to move your needle by just offering a few dollars here and there. It's, it's, it's more disruptive than anything else. So we're here until, you know, somebody shows us the door or in 50 years, we're wrapping up. Uh, we've been speaking with Bryce Phillips. He is the president of Southern Tier Solutions. Bryce, thanks for visiting us in the studio. No, thank you for your time. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.